0: You are listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. All right. Good morning, Sun Grove Church. Wow, there's a lot of people here. Let's do the offering first. Can we do that? That was a joke, you guys. (laughs) Good morning. Welcome to Sun Grove. We are so glad that you're here. We actually don't do that in the course of the service now. You give on the way out. So if I forget to say that at the end, now you know. We are so glad to have you joining us Uh, This morning it's a special day. We normally have a six o'clock service also, but we've sort of hunkered down and all of y'all get to honor somebody hopefully later today and so you'll have the day to do that. Uh, It's exciting for me um, as a part of this body. My children who are sort of grown, can we say you're grown, young adults, are home from out of town for Mother's Day. So my mama's heart is full. My daughter, Jaycee's here, my son, Jared, I think might be helping with the ushers. And um, so of course our laundry is overflowing too. And ice cream in our freezer for like an hour, and then that's gone. Um, But it's also sweet because my mom, Marlo, is here from Arizona and uh, visiting for Mother's Day, which is sweet, so my refrigerator has never looked so spotless. And I know it's, and next week I'll be, t- mom, where, where are the Tupperware lids? And where are the Pyrex dishes? Cause there's always a better place to put them and I hadn't found them yet. So she'll let me know. And the spices are, and they're alphabetized. No, she's not that. It's sweet. It is so, so, so sweet to have them all together. So as we were preparing um, this series, our pastor Dave is leading us through this incredible foundational series called Identity, Formation, Community, and Mission. And he asked me a few months ago to bring a message on Mother's Day. We're in the second week of community. And so not only do I hope that we can honor uh, motherhood and moms and those who've impacted our lives, I get to do for the one what I hope all of you do um, for your own mom and to honor her today. But also, we're gonna do it in the context of looking in 2 Corinthians at, um, at something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church. And I hope for all of us, it's an encouragement. I hope that whatever you came in here with today, that you leave and you know from what we just sang that God is who he says he is And because of who God says he is, you have hope and encouragement, and uh, you can walk in victory. So I'm going to pray before we get started, and then we'll dive in. So Jesus, I just thank you. I love your word. I thank you that your word has something to say to every single one of us. I thank you that your spirit in us helps us to navigate all the circumstances of life, And I thank you that we have a free place here in freedom. We can gather to worship and lift high your name, the one name above all. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right. So I don't know if you know the history of Mother's Day. I had to look it up because I didn't. I thought Hallmark invented it, and they didn't. Um, There was a woman, her name was Anna Jarvis in the early 1900s, so she actually would have been a contemporary of my grandmother. She wanted to honor her mom. Her mom, um, Ann Jarvis, ahead of her, had really poured out her life in sacrifice. She worked to improve children's Um, health and just their circumstance in their community. She was just an advocate and an activist for children and as a mom her daughter saw what a sacrifice, what a What an incredible example of leveraging your life to improve the generation behind you. So she set out to uh, set aside a day for that, and um, that was in 1908, and she got her church, it was a Methodist church in Philadelphia, to host the first Mother's Day, and the white carnation was her mom's favorite flower, and she loved the symbolism of the white being the purity of a mother's love, and so that was sort of an early uh, symbol of the movement to honor moms. And then in 1914, it was signed into law and became an official holiday. And since that time, however you are familiar with it, I was interested to find that the woman that advocated to have it placed, to have women honored all across our country, was so sorry to see that the original intent, the heart of it, seemed to be lost. It was meant to be a personal honoring. It was meant to honor the one who had mostly influenced her and and for each to do it personally. and it, it became a, a business, right? Confectioners got on board and card companies got on board and flowers and all these years later, if you Google it, they've got symbolism for colors and flowers that really were never there, but they sell more stuff. And so that, that woman that, that started that movement actually at the end of her life tried to get it removed. She just said it's lost the heart intent and it wasn't meant to be a corporate thing. And, and I get that, that by default, maybe, Do we sit back and think, well, the second Sunday in May is set aside for moms when really they deserve honor all the time, right? Because God, they do, and not just moms, parents. God, when he commanded a long time ago to honor fathers and mothers, he was setting up this example of relationships, and he was choosing to honor the relationship through which life comes. And so he commanded that. So that was, that was God's heart for it. And I understand and appreciate her effort. But my challenge to us today, my, my purpose as I read through that story was it made me think. Do I by default wait till May, whatever? And it always falls right on or before my husband's birthday. And so we do this happy birthday thing, Mother's Day thing. We don't need to wait for that day. So, so I want to come back to the original intent of that the honoring the one and ultimately honoring the one who gave us life. So in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church he loves very much. It's going to be before his third trip there. He's not been there, and so some false teachers have infiltrated the ranks. And essentially what they're doing is they're, they're grumbling about whether or not he's got the position or the authority um, to be preaching the message. And, and if you discredit the messenger then they can disregard the message of Christ. And so Paul's going to write to them, and he, he wants to remind this church, remember, I've lived my life in front of you with integrity. Remember, the message of Christ is one that's transforming lives. Look at that. And so I'm going to read the intro to the letter. It won't be on the screen for you, but just to give you a backdrop, and you get to hear his heart, he lays it out who he is and why he's writing to them again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God in Corinth together with all his holy people. So he and Timothy are sending this letter together. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our trouble, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance." And our hope for you is firm, because we know just as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. And we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about all the trouble that we've faced. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despised of life itself. We felt we had received a sentence of death, but... This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And what's harder than that? God has delivered us from a deadly peril. He will deliver us again. And on him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by our prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted in answer to our prayers. I love Paul's heart in this, and I love that he starts out to remind them, there will be hardship, it's purposeful, it's for patient endurance, and so that you rely on God, and at the end of our time, we want to pray for you, the generations, just as he asked this church, and my mom, and my daughter we're going to pray together for the generations and I want you to be preparing yourselves to agree what is it that you need God to encourage you in today we are going to ask God for that so if it's okay I'm going to share a little bit of our story because about 10 years ago my mom finished writing her family memoirs it was actually started by her mother but when it was clear that she wouldn't be able to finish them my mom determined to do that and complete them. So in 2005, she had a gentleman who helped her compile the story and then, um, well, publish it. I had all this paperwork for copyright. I had to fill out, to ask permission if I could... It was was a booklet. It was kind of a booklet, but it was printed. It was awesome. And there weren't copyrights. She just said, yes, you can use it. It was very nice. So I want to incorporate some of that because I love the thread of perseverance. And as I was studying Corinthians about that and then I read the stories, I was reminded, wow, all of us have a legacy. And if your family is anything like ours and there's been trouble, it's a legacy of persevering. So we're gonna start there with the story of my great-grandmother, Anna Hoyer. Her family was originally in Germany. They settled. They were from Alsace-Lorraine, and at a time, the Hungarian government invited German farmers to come to Hungary. They were going to give them their own farmland. They said, come, you can keep your customs, you can settle, but farm the land and produce for market the the produce and you can build a community here, which they did. And for a couple generations prior to my great-grandmother, that's what they did. Incredibly hardworking people, which is why the Hungarian government invited them. They knew they were um, incredible in their work ethic. But dirt poor, like dirt floors, dirt, everything. And, and the, the time period in the 1800s when she was born in 1890, they were farmers, they, they had orchards that they tended to and everything by hand, you know, walking to get your water and an ox cart would bring it back and, and the lace and the, the, the things of intricate um, embroidery and baking, what they were phenomenal at because that's what they had. They didn't have any of the modern conveniences. And when I realized 1890 she was born, that was 125 years ago. Wow. When my great-grandmother was 17, how many of you are 17? Close to 17, almost 17. Okay, been 17. Try to remember, 17, she left Hungary. She did not know any other language. She had never been out of her small town. And she got on a ship she was in the steerage compartment, and she tended the children who were sick on the journey, came in through Ellis Island, had to be processed as a 17-year-old girl, got on a train, and made it all the way to Chicago, where a couple of her brothers had come a few years before. Her childhood sweetheart had come ahead of her, too, because he knew he needed to make a better life for himself. So that's where they settled in Chicago. And there she was. All she had was what she had been equipped with learning by hand growing up. Seventeen. That is incredible. My earliest memory of her, even though her story says she was born premature and wasn't gonna survive, I guess the family carried her to church on a pillow. This was my great-grandmother. My memory of her was this robust, wonderful woman. She was not frail and tiny and, you know, any of that now. I remember thick, heavy accent, thick, curly hair, which I've told my children now, you're welcome. (laughs) Both sides of the family, thick, curly hair. And her hands, which were always doing something. And I was age four. She had come to visit us in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My younger brother, Scott, I like to call him Scooter, that was his nickname, my little brother Scotty was born. I was four. I had two older brothers. And Grandma Hangelman had come to help my mom because my mom's own mom could not come. And I remember walking into the house, homemade apple strudel. And it really didn't matter what she cooked, because our house, the neighborhood, the backyard, everything smelled amazing. It's like a memory you can smell. You have those? Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. You are the aroma of Christ. Paul is going to insert in this letter, I love this about Paul, the guy, first of all, uses run-on sentences. I love that. Secondly, he's talking along his itinerary, and he breaks off into this great segue for about five chapters on the awesomeness and all-sufficiency of Christ. This huge faith rant, basically, and it starts right here, and I love this part. He says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing." To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such tasks? Which he answers later, our sufficiency. The reason we can do this is because of Christ. You are the aroma of Christ. Pastor Dave preached on this a while ago and went through the symbolism of that as if it was a a military procession. You walk in victory because of what Christ has already accomplished. Because Christ of that faith, we walk in victory. We remember that because Christ smells sweet, but you know what, to people that don't wanna hear about it, you smell like death. We need perseverance, we need to be reminded, you walk in victory. When, When someone, when there's a temptation and your flesh is wrestling, you walk in victory. Jesus has already given in our spirit everything we need for goodness and godliness, to walk in victory. Jesus has already paid the price for the sin. When the enemy is gonna tell you again, remember that thing, remember the past, remember that accusation, he's a liar. You walk in victory. And because of that faith and you walk in victory, that is a message people who are dying around you need to hear. Not only are you a sweet aroma of Christ and they want to know how to deal with my sin problem. We have a Savior who did it already. But when the enemy comes, and he will, the very real enemy of your soul, you get to stand firm because you already walk in victory. So remember that today, church. You smell good. You smell like Christ. You walk in victory. My grandma Petrie then, my mom's mom, Her first name, Therese, is JC's middle namesake. My great-grandmother, Anna, is my middle namesake. I love that. But Grandma Therese, she was born to uh, Anna and Casper Hengelman, who I just mentioned, May of 1911. She was the second daughter. Their first daughter was stillborn. And she grew up in Chicago at a time in the 19-teens. There were rumblings of a world war. She remembers that her father, because they were of German descent, it was a scary time. They had to carry papers so that they could identify themselves. My grandma Hangelman is the one on the far, and then grandma Petrie right in the middle. That's my mom as a little girl. That is a cute picture. So grandma Petrie, growing up with these sweet parents in Chicago, had the background of it's kind of scary because we're of German descent, but also that was at the same time a recommendation for uh, my grandfather finding work. They knew these workers were incredible and his work ethic. And so he, he got his early jobs in manufacturing because they would look across the room and he remembers a foreman pointing him out in the very back and said, you come here, are you German? He said, yes, I want you. He was an amazing worker, my great-grandfather. So Grandma Petrie was telling this story with that kind of going on as she's growing up. At the same time, she lives in this little suburb in Chicago. And just to give, again, context of the era, at dusk every night, a guy on his bicycle with a ladder strapped to the bicycle, and no helmet, no laws or anything, his job was to stop at every single lamppost and put the ladder against the pole, and climb the ladder, and hand light those streetlights. He'd climb back down, he'd carry the ladder, and go do that again, and again, and again, and in the morning at dawn, retrace the steps and extinguish every one of those lights. In 1935, then, my sweet Grandma Petrie married her uh, high school sweetheart, I guess, Mort. And they settled there in Chicago, and they had my mom two years later. My mom was just 10 months old when my grandfather got a new job. They were going to move from Chicago to Texas. Because they were so involved in their young adults' community and active, um, they they played sports and a lot of social events together. They had all these different going away parties because people were going to miss them and they want to send them off. The one last one, they were going to drive to St. Louis with two of their friends, four of them in the car. They were about four hours outside of Chicago. My mom stayed with great-grandma, and it was raining, and the road they were on was under construction. They lost visibility, had to slow down quickly, and when my grandfather braked, the car began to spin, and he lost control, careened off the road, and it ended up upside down in a ditch of water. Three of the passengers got out, got to the top of the muddy embankment. They're all in shock, and Grandpa realizes, where's Therese? My grandmother's memory is panic. I am face down in water. I cannot move my limbs, and I cannot lift my head. And then peace, as she thought, who's going to care for Grandma? Who's going to care for Marlo? And who's Mort going to marry now? (laughs) Somehow. My grandfather was able to pick her limp body up through the window of the back seat up the muddy hill and lay her on the side of the road where all she remembers is feeling rain on her face. Now, in the 1930s, you don't survive a spinal cord injury, much less live with one. But she did for 49 more years as a quadriplegic. She outlived four of her doctors. In the book, in the story, it tells where they had given the family a horrible prognosis. She won't make it. We don't know what to do with this. They ended up getting a second opinion and sending her to a surgeon who would. But when the minister came in to issue last rites to her, and this is in the first few days, it was said that she said to him, I am not going to die today you can go pray with someone else. Mm -hmm. That spirit, that is perseverance. I'll never forget that. That woman lived with such joy. She's the one everyone went and talked to, the compassion that poured out of her. She could use none of her physical abilities, but she could speak life. I have a box of notes I've kept over the years from my children, from my husband, from my parents, from sisters and friends who've sent encouragement or thank yous or whatever. And I was going through it recently because just to clean up the office and reminiscing and crying and texting my children, remember when you said this? And I have note cards from my grandma Petrie. She didn't have use of her fingers. She had use of some shoulder and she was in a full-body-length cot wheelchair. She would write on birthdays and Christmas and other times. Somehow she would prop one arm on the paper so it wouldn't move, and Grandpa rigged a pen somehow in the other hand, and with felt-tip marker using only her shoulder, she would write to me in cursive. That, Is a letter forged from great love. That is a labor of love. It's a treasure. Second Corinthians 3 says you are a letter from Christ. Paul is answering the fact that they had to have like letters of vouching for the preachers that were coming through, the guys that were fake. And Paul's going to say, are are we needing that? No, no, no. You don't need a letter of recommendation for me. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, which fades, but with the Spirit of the living God, which is enduring, which is powerful, which is transforming, which is eternal, not on tablets of stone like the law, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have in Christ before God, he has made it so. You are a letter from Christ. And because of that hope, we are very bold. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 says, our gospel, it came not just with words, It came with power, it came with the Holy Spirit, it came with conviction. When something in my life comes in and it's not of God, it's just words. When someone influences you and it is not of the Holy Spirit, it's just words. But you are a letter, handwritten from Christ. You, your life is writing Christ on other people's hearts. It's powerful, it's lasting, and because of that, we are very bold. And when I read that, I was like, okay, we have this hope, we're really bold. Is that like bossy? <laughs> Perfect, I'm qualified. No, oh, you can't laugh, you know that's true for you too, maybe one or two of you. No, I looked it up, it's not, it doesn't mean controlling, it doesn't mean bossy, it doesn't mean loud. Because of this hope in Christ, we are very bold. We are unhesitant and fearless. Friends, we get to encourage people with the hope of Christ. Do not hesitate when he prompts it. Do not be afraid when he prompts it because if he's doing it, it will be eternal and lasting and transforming. Praise be to God. My mom, Marlo, is awesome. She grew up in Chicago with... The parents I mentioned, Mort and Therese, her mom, she never saw walk. She was a quadriplegic her whole life. Uh, mom was writing her story until she passed away at the age of 78, and so my mom determined to finish the story. When my dad was commissioned uh, in the Army, they were both at University of Wisconsin, 1958. They got married, and for the next five years, they were in Army life. So my brother Paul was born at Fort Lewis, Washington. My brother Brian was born at Fort Benning, Georgia. My dad spent 13 months in Korea, and then they got out of the army and went into business life, which he essentially has done for the next 50 years. In 1964, I had a sister who was born. Her name was Linda Marie. She was born with a congenital heart defect. She had a hole in her heart. In 1964, they didn't have ultrasound to see that that was the issue before she was born and they didn't have the expertise available for them to have it repaired. She lasted two weeks. Grief, you don't expect to bury your children. My mom walked through grief, it didn't define her. She grieved, but all these years later, it's been 50 now. The sovereignty of God reminds me that because of that loss, I'm here. You are a vessel for Christ. My mom over the years have spoken encouragement into my life over the things she saw in me that God has chosen to develop. She said to me early on, Sarah, you're a great writer. Will you write all of our Christmas letters? It wasn't self-serving. It was very encouraging to me. And so I did. And she said, Sarah, have you ever thought of physical therapy? Imagine what Grandma Petrie could have had if she had physical therapy. And that's what I do today. In fact, in the last year, I've had two little kiddos in my care that have had congenital heart defects. And because they can repair them, We are teaching those kiddos to run and jump and hop and skip, and they're amazing. Seeds planted, moms and dads, hear me, they matter. You are imprinting on the life of your kids. You are calling out encouragement. You are casting vision, and it's awesome. And when they catch it because you know God and you're following God and your hope is sure, sure, they will be encouraged. They will hear it. You are a vessel for Christ. In Corinthians, uh, in, the, in the book that we're in, in chapter 4 now, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. You are a vessel for Christ, and because of this treasure, you do not lose heart. He goes on to say, what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're jars of clay. You know, at the beginning when God made us from dirt, just add water, clay, that's us. We're the jar of clay, but the treasure inside is the Spirit of God. And he goes on to say, You are hard-pressed on every side, but you are not crushed on the inside. You are perplexed on the outside, not in despair on the inside. You are persecuted from all sides on the outside, but you are not abandoned in your spirit on the inside. You will be struck down, but you will not be destroyed. We have this treasure, do not lose heart. I love that picture, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed by day by day. I think back and I think my grandma Petrie chose to live when her body was broken from the inside out. We all get to choose that, she chose it daily. I remember mom telling me, her mom would pick the next milestone, I wanna see Marlo go to school. And she did. I wanna see Marlo go to high school. And she did. Her mom would say, I wanna see you get married. And she did. I wanna see my grandchildren. And she did. She chose to live from the inside out. That's what we get to do. We have this treasure. What Jesus has done in us is amazing. His all surpassing power is his, not ours. We're just the vessel. I love how in scripture there's a couple of pictures, if if you like to do word studies, the, the jar of clay idea, I went back, I wanted to know more about that. And there is both in the Old Testament and the New Testament examples where the jar of clay, the jar that's used is just the receptacle of the miracle of God of provision, where the flour didn't run out or the oil didn't run out or Jesus turns water into wine. The vessel isn't the miracle, it's just the holder of it. It's the reason the miracle gets demonstrated. And then in all of the Gospels, there's the story of the woman who responds to the words of Jesus, she lives a life of sin, she responds to Jesus with great gratitude because he's forgiven her, and she brings the perfume and breaks it at his feet and pours it out. The bottle, the vessel isn't the important thing, it's the pouring out, but it carried the blessing, it carried her worship there. And my favorite is in Gideon, in the Old Testament, and God says, Gideon, we gotta route all those, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of the enemy, and I'm sending you, and you have too many men to accomplish what I want, too many. So God sent most of them home, and there was just a couple hundred, and he gave them a trumpet and a torch, and a jar that was empty that went upside down on the torch so that they could get right up to the enemy camp. And in the middle of the night, when they blew the trumpet to sound the battle cry, they smashed the jar of clay so that the torchlight shone And the enemy turned on themselves, routed their own, or fled. And when I hear that story, I I just kept thinking, wow, we are, we're just the clay, God's the potter. He gets to choose how he uses us, when he uses us. We might just abide. We might just be the thing that carries the word to the person that we meet that's hurting or lost. We might, we might be pouring out in service or worship or, or forgiveness, but we're the vessel for that ministry. Or maybe there's a time when we are just empty and broken, and that is what demonstrates the power and the presence of God. It's not about the vessel It's about the treasure inside the vessel, but what a privilege and joy to be a vessel for Christ, right? Because of that, we do not lose heart. Or said another way, we are greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged. There's a story behind a story, excuse me, there's a story behind a song by Phillips, Craig and Dean and he, the singer-songwriter tells of a surgeon that goes to his church in Nashville and invited him to come and observe a surgery. He's like, that'd be cool. So he watched the surgery, it was a microscopic you know, heart repair, and then he closed up the wound and he closed up the, guy, the, the woman's chest. And they wait to see if the vitals change, see if, if it kicks in, and it didn't. So the songwriter said he watched and the surgeon leaned down to the woman and he spoke her name and he said, this is your surgeon. The surgery went perfectly. Your heart is repaired. Now tell your heart to beat again. And it did. You probably know the song, Danny Gokey sings it now, but the original writer watched that surgeon do that And that strikes me today. Jesus has already paid for our sin. Remind yourself to walk in victory. Jesus has already planned for you good out of what you're bearing that's hard. Choose now to tell your heart to beat again. Walk forward in victory. Walk forward in faith and hope. We get to respond to a God like that who looks down and knows how he's going to use this vessel. Every day we get to choose to say yes to him. Every day we get to say yes, Lord, if it's just to abide, if it's to be poured out, if it's to be broken so that more of you shows, yes, Lord, we want that. So how can we pray for you today? I want you to think about what God would speak to your heart. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.